Glad to see everybody. Glad we could have this joint service today. God is good. Amen. Amen. All right. I want you all to know that I, uh, I want Ecclesia to know, and I want uh, Pastor Laurent to know. I, I got a lot of flack from my servant from my church after we had the joint service because you were so passionate and engaging <laughs> with them. And then I came the next week, and I was like, how come nobody's engaging with me? <laughs> so anyway, it was an awesome service. Amen. All right, we're going to be um, talking about a few things today. I want to begin by talking to you all uh, about a man who God spoke to. And God told this man not to get married. He told this man not to have children. But God had a plan for this man But the thing was, it was going to be a difficult path for this man to walk. In fact, God told the man he was going to send him to a people that didn't want to hear God's word. They wouldn't respond to God's word. And if you looked at his ministry, if we looked at his ministry, even today, if we looked at his ministry, uh, it would appear like it was unfruitful. Um, No one was going to believe him. No one was going to convert. No one would grow. No one would change. No one would repent. No one would really listen. Now, how alone would you feel if this is what God called you to do? No wife, no children, no one to stand with you. It appears your ministry is fruitless. It would seem like maybe you're a failure and you'd be all by yourself. Now, could you do that? It'd be tough. It'd be very tough. Uh, This man that I'm talking about is the prophet Jeremiah. And he's told in Jeremiah 16, he's told not to marry or have children. He's told in Jeremiah 7, you're going to go to the people and they're not going to listen to the message you give them that's from me. And if you examine all the chapters of Jeremiah, and there's a lot of them, uh, there's not much fruit. God's right. People, people hear the word, and what do they do? They reject it. Yet God tells them to go and to not be afraid. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. Let's start in verse 4. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. And then notice this part in verse 8. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now, it'd be easy to say, like, don't be afraid of them because they're going to receive your message and there's going to be tons of fruit and everyone's going to think you're awesome and your, your messages that you give are amazing and right on. I mean, okay. But no, that's not what happens. That's not what he's told. So this is a reassurance, like, don't be afraid, but why? For I am with you. I am with you. And six times throughout the book of Jeremiah, the Lord tells either Jeremiah or he tells the Israelites, 
I am with you. And sometimes, friends, we just need that simple fact repeated to us. The Lord is with us. So he's with us each step of the way. And what I want us to see today as we look through the scriptures, and we're going to be turning to quite a few, is that just like God cared for Jeremiah, he cares for us. And I want to show you today that you see this care reflected in each member of the Godhead. We're going to see how the Father cares for his people. We're going to see how the Son cares for his people. We're going to see how the Holy Spirit cares for his people. So what you're going to see is that each member is working in our lives and ministering to us in similarities, but also in different ways. Turn first to Matthew chapter 6. In verse 25, this is Jesus speaking. It's a Sermon on the Mount. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So my first point here regarding God the Father is that he's with us each step of the way, and he is going to provide for us each step of the way. We don't have to go looking for God. We don't have to. Because he's right here with us. Okay? He's not out there. He's not really, I mean, he's up there, but he's not even really up there because he's right here. God is right here with us. Wherever you're at, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're going through, God's there. He might not feel like it sometimes. I get it. I felt like that myself sometimes. But that does not negate what the Scriptures tell us. That He's here with us. He might feel far away. But He's here. He is here with us. So He's with us each step of the way. Second, He protects us. Alright, we run to Him. You guys ever run to God? Alright. I was running to God yesterday. I was running to God this morning. Um, if we're not running to him, we're not at a good place because we should be running to the Lord. We should be seeking after him. We should be coming before his throne and getting on our knees and seeking after him because he, listen to me, he is our protector and he's our shelter. Look at Psalm 46. Look at this in the very first verse of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, 
a very present help in trouble. Is that the God you want? I mean, that's the God I want. He's our refuge and strength. He's going to be there when we need him most. He will not let us down. Look back a few chapters to Psalm 34. It says the very last verse of Psalm 34 in verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen? We're with the Lord. There's no condemnation. No condemnation. Now, I don't know about you, um, but when I first got saved, uh, for some reason, and it speaks to my immaturity, uh, the, the, the Psalms, for some reason, they just, I, just couldn't, I just couldn't get into the Psalms. All right? um, and I, I even, I even like read a couple books like, on how great the Psalms are, trying to like, revive some interest in me for the Psalms. It's just like the songbook of, of Israel, right? That's like their worship book. And um, I guess God in his mercy and his grace, and as I matured in the Lord, I saw the richness in the Psalms. And uh, the Psalms have ministered, God has used the Psalms to minister to my heart and my soul over and over and over again. When I've been in some dark places, uh, the Psalms are kind of my go-to book. Because it's kind of like uh, you can see David, and you can see the other psalm writers, and you can see, you can see kind of the, the darkness that they dealt with sometimes, and the anguish of soul that they were in. And I mean, you can relate. I can relate. Even yesterday, I was dealing with some stuff. Actually, I think the Lord was dealing with me on some stuff. And I found myself back in the psalms, seeking after him, asking for his mercy, asking for his grace. Look, with the Lord, we have a protector. With the Lord, we have refuge. And we don't have condemnation. Third, God does for us what we ourselves cannot do. God does for us what we ourselves cannot do. Look at Isaiah chapter 41. He starts out in verse 8 of Isaiah 41. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. And then notice what he says here in verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Isn't that the word that he gave to Jeremiah, right? Don't be afraid. I am with you. Here he's telling it again. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am am your God. And look what he says he's going to do for them. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So he strengthens, he helps, he upholds. Listen, God is with us to the end. He is with us to the end, and he is faithful and cares for us each step of the way. He tells us he'll never abandon us. Think of what it says in Hebrews 13. It says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's quoting from Joshua. We might look at it in a bit. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Think of King Solomon's prayer. They're dedicating the temple. It's in 1 Kings. And he says, the Lord our God be with us 
as he was with our fathers, may he not leave us or forsake us. What does it mean to be forsaken? It means to renounce, to turn away from. Have you ever felt forsaken by someone? Like they left you out to dry? They dropped you? They were just gone? Well, listen, God doesn't do that. All right? People do that. Humans do that. Men do that. Women do that. Tall, short, big, skinny. All of them. If we're honest, we've probably done that to somebody. Hopefully just for a season and we repented. But God doesn't forsake his own. And look what he promises. He promises it to us. He promises it to the Old Testament saints. He gives this promise to Joshua. Look at Joshua in chapter 1. Moses has just died, and Joshua is the new appointed leader of the Israelites under God's command. I mean, you want to talk about a megachurch, all right? I mean, they had a couple million, all right? None of these pastors today got anything on Moses or Joshua. He was like the mega, mega church, all right? So he's taken over this, this church, basically, of like millions of people. And he goes, and it says, verse 1, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. So he's, he's commissioning him. He's putting him into the place that he wants. He's telling him to be the leader that he's been called to be. Do the task that I've set before you. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. He's basically saying no one can stand against you. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was, was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Isn't that good? The faithful Father, the one who loves you, cares for you, cherishes you, will never forsake you. Family might. Friends might. God won't. He won't forsake you. He won't abandon you. He won't turn away from you. He cares for you. He protects you. He loves you. And Psalm 103 says, As a father shows compassion to his children. Listen, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Then let's look at how the Son cares for us. We see this clearly in quite a few ways. Look at Matthew 28. We've read this before. At the very end, Jesus commissioning his disciples. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, 
to the end of the age. Now notice what Jesus is promising here. It's the same promise that Yahweh and the Old Testament was saying, just like with Jeremiah, just like with Joshua, just like with the Israelites. Here Jesus says, I am with you always. To the end of the age. Okay? To the end of the age. That's a long time. We're still in that age, right? This same promise God made in the Old Testament now affirms and is made again by the Son, Jesus. And this is how Jesus will always be. He's always going to be there for you. He's always going to walk with you. He's always going to be by your side. The Scripture says the same thing about God that it says about Jesus in Hebrews. Jesus Christ, the same what? Yesterday, today, and forever. He's not going to change. So he's going to continue to be with us. He's going to continue to walk with us. Lo, I am with you always. So he's present with us at all times. Listen, I don't know about you, but sometimes when we're dealing with heartache or tragedy or we're going through a tough time, sometimes just just having someone there is, is very helpful. So when tragedy strikes, we want people that, that care about us and that we care about to be there. And we're not necessarily concerned about like the words they can say. We want their presence there. And their presence speaks a lot. right? Well, it's the same, it's the same with the Father. It's the same with the Son. Their presence speaks a lot. right? It speaks a lot. So they're with us each step of the way. Notice also Jesus' second, my point is, uh, notice his attitude towards his people. Notice his attitude towards his people. Look at Mark chapter 6. It says in verse 34, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So Jesus, what's his attitude? It's one of compassion. It's one of kindness. It's one of caring. It's one of love. He loves us. He has compassion for us. Here he gets out of the boat and he sees everybody, every single person, and he has compassion on them. Like sheep, it says, without a shepherd. Two chapters later, he says a similar thing. Mark chapter 8. In verse 1 it says, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Compassion. Right? You're seeing someone in need, right? And you want to help them out. So you do something about it. That's real compassion. You minister. How does he have compassion here? How does he show it? He feeds them, right? He feeds them. So his attitude towards us is one of kindness, is one of grace, is one of mercy, is one of compassion. He cares for us. Third, we see it with the Son in the very fact that he sacrificed his life for us. He willingly went to the cross. Look at John 15. In verse 9 he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus lived for you. He lived the perfect life, but he also died for you. He died the perfect death. And the question is, is that enough for you? Is what Jesus did enough for you? It's enough for me. Is it enough for you? He lived that perfect life. And he died that death. See, the Colossians, if you've ever read the book of Colossians, the Colossians weren't thinking that Jesus was enough. That's why Paul has to write them the letter, actually, to address the things going on in that city. And what were they trying to do? They were being told some uh, bogus heresy that you needed more than Jesus, that Jesus wasn't enough, and there was some like secret knowledge, some hidden knowledge that you had to have in order to be right with the Lord, in order to have the true religion. Look at Colossians chapter 2. I want you to see this. So Paul's trying to correct this error that has crept into this church in this city. Actually, let's start in, in, in chapter 1. He says in verse 11, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Isn't that a good picture? Like he transferred us from darkness to light. Going on, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now, Paul doesn't waste any time, and he starts talking here about the preeminence of Jesus. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul's here is just hamming away at theology and giving him the true picture of Christ. He is the preeminent one. He's the head of the church. But what is he battling here? That the Colossians thought that you needed something in addition to Christ. And so some, some of the Colossians were trying to do it through asceticism, through denying themselves. Some of them were trying to do it through angel worship, if you can believe that. Some of them were trying to do it through uh, the gnosis, or what, which just means like a secret knowledge. You needed this secret knowledge. Sometimes even Christians, sadly, can get into some of that junk. You've got to have this like, secret knowledge. You know? Like this group of people over here is higher up, or this group of people over here is higher up. No, that's not the way it is. We've got the scriptures right here. All right? 
So he, he starts to address it. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, we just read that sometimes, and it's kind of a long run-on sentence. I get that. Paul's like great at doing that. So it's pretty long. But he's just pretty much knocked down, and he's going to continue to do it through the rest of the chapter, this idea of this false, secret, hidden knowledge that they need and showing them that Christ is enough. Because notice what he says there. Because if you read it too quick, you miss it. At the very end of verse 2, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now in the scriptures, whenever the word mystery is used in the New Testament, it always reveals to something that was previously hidden and God has now made known. So yeah, was it a mystery? We did, they didn't know the plan of salvation in the Old Testament. I mean, there was glimpses of it. There was prophecies about how, but we did, not the clear picture we got today, right? Not that his name was going to be Jesus Christ. Not that it was going to be on a cross that he would be crucified, that the sins would be placed on him, that we would get forgiveness of sins and the righteousness would come to us. I mean, we got pretty great detail. But those things were veiled to the believers in the Old Testament. They, they were seeing it through a veil. You know what I'm saying? Okay? They had glimpses of it. It's kind of like that glass back there behind the sound booth. I mean, you can kind of see stuff going on on the other side of it, right? But it's, 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 it's like dim. Okay? Here, he's saying, the no, you want that knowledge? Well, here's the knowledge. The knowledge of that mystery that you're all trying to find out about is Jesus. All right, you already know about him. I just talked to you about him, is what Paul's saying. So you don't need that secret knowledge. If you got Jesus, you got enough. If you have Jesus, you have enough. And listen to me, Jesus is better than anything. He's better than anything. And we see this imagery of Jesus and the Father, uh, of both of them being compared to shepherds. Uh, Verse after verse, I'll just give you a couple. We're not going to turn there. But Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Uh, Psalm 80, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Then with, with Jesus, he says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in Hebrews 13 it says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, be with you. So we have the Father, we have the Son, and then we have the Spirit. The Spirit cares for you. There are a few ways we see this. First, he speaks to us by Scripture. Now, in many ways, it can seem like the Holy Spirit is rather silent. You try to do a word study on Holy Spirit, you might not get many hits in your concordance. It can seem like he's rather silent, but I would put forth to you that he speaks quite loudly because all of the Scripture, it says in 2 Timothy, all of the Scripture is God-breathed. All right, you know that word for breathed there, uh, it's actually Paul kind of made up his own little word there, okay? Um, it's really God, it's almost like God and spirited combined. 
It's God-spirited. It's spirited by God. The Spirit is speaking. And then we hear in 2 Peter, turn to 2 Peter because I want you to see this. In verse uh, 21 of chapter 1, 2 Peter, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they are carried along by who? By the Holy Spirit. All right? No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. We see something similar in Hebrews chapter 3. I want you to see this because it's, it's kind of cool. Hebrews 3. It's talking about how Jesus is greater than Moses. And it picks up in verse 7 and it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then what does it do? It quotes from the Old Testament. As the Holy Spirit says. Well, if you turn to that passage in the Old Testament, it doesn't say the Holy Spirit says, but the writer of Hebrews is acknowledging to us that the Holy Spirit inspired that passage, just like he inspired all of them. He speaks, and he speaks rather loudly. Second, he communes with us. Look at 1 John chapter 1. He communes, we might say, fellowships with us. Most people might, might miss this if they're not careful. 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And then check this part out. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. That's that Greek word you all probably heard before, koinonia. Uh, it means partnership, participation, communion. We're together. We're linked with one another. We're working with one another. But then check out what Paul says in 2 Corinthians under the inspiration of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, the very last chapter. As he closes up his letter to the Corinthians, he says in the very last verse, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's that same Greek word there, that koinonia word that you all know. So we have fellowship with the, with the Father. We also have fellowship with the Son, but we also have fellowship with the Spirit. The Spirit fellowships with us. We commune with Him. Third, we see the Spirit as He helps us. As He helps us. Where do you all think I'm going to turn? Because we're going to be talking about the Helper. That's right. We're turning to John 14. Jesus says in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then look a couple verses further down. 
And he goes on, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Spirit shows how he cares by helping us. He helps us. He is the Helper. The Helper. Not a Helper. Right? We got a lot of helpers, but he's the helper. Okay. Now, I want you to notice one little thing here. It's kind of cool. Uh, and back in verse 26, where it's talking about the helper, um, John actually goes against some, some normal Greek grammar here to emphasize, because he wanted to make sure that his readers made sure they understood who the Holy Spirit was. And he actually changes Greek grammar so that he makes it clear to his readers that it says the Spirit is a he. And he goes against Greek grammar because if he, wasn't, if, he, if he just went with the normal Greek grammar, he could try to argue that maybe the Spirit's in it. He actually changes it. He goes against the grammar and uses what we would call the masculine ending to make sure we all know that the Spirit is a he, not an it. He's a he. He's a person. So he's our helper. And it says in Romans 8, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, I'm weak. Are you all weak? Okay? Sometimes I don't think we think that. Right? We think we can do it. On our own. By ourselves. No, we need the helper. If you ain't got the helper, uh, you're going to need a lot of help. All right? So you need the helper. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit helps us. So let me make a few observations about these things. <clears throat> because God cares for us, one, we can trust him, right? He's shown us that he is trustworthy. Two, we can seek him. Three, I would put before you, we should hunger after the things that God hungers after. We should thirst for the same things that he thirsts for. Um, God gives us, God gives us what we need. Think of what he taught the disciples. Give us this day our daily bread. Now some of us are like, Lord, give me the whole loaf. All right? No, it's daily bread. Why is it daily bread? Because he wants daily dependence from us on him. All right, you got the whole loaf? You'd be like, I'm good for a few days. Right? You just cut yourself a little slice every time you need it. And some of you are like, Lord, I want the bakery. No. Daily bread. Oftentimes he gives us just enough so that we're continually dependent on him. But he does give us what, what we need. It's not always what we want, right? But it's what we need. And listen, if God says we need it, we need it. And if God says we don't need it, we don't need it. It doesn't matter how much it might seem like we do need it. If God says we don't need it, it's like we don't need it. And if God says we need it, we might not think we need it, but if God says we need it, we need it. And if God says, I don't want you to have it, then you say, 
your will be done. Right? Listen, God is always going to have a faithful remnant of his people. And you hear about, I'm going to do a sermon sometime on this, but you hear about Christianity like falling apart. It's like falling apart. It's not falling apart. All right? The kingdom's not collapsing. The stones aren't coming undone. In fact, if you examine Christianity throughout the world, like we think, well, we're in America. We're in America. That's like the, you know, how's Christianity doing? Like, like we think we're all that living in America. We get to decide how Christianity is doing just by looking around a little bit. I mean, that kind of speaks to the, uh, the pride that many Americans have. You look around the world, if you want to get a little pulse on what Christianity is doing, it's going to blow your mind, all right? I'll give some, some information at some time in, in a future sermon, but like the gospel, friends, it's alive and well, all right? You might not think it's alive and well. You might not think it's active. You might not think God's doing something, but you're fooled and you're deceived because the gospel is going forth. And there is revivals breaking out in countries, some of the darkest, nastiest, vilest countries. God's spirit is in there and it's working. And God has always promised that he will keep a remnant. There will always be a remnant. So it doesn't matter if you think you're the last person. If persecution got really bad here and you thought you were the last person, you're not the last person. God will keep a remnant. He will do that. Elijah thought he was, I'm not, I'm not the only one left, Lord. No, I got 7,000 people. 7,000 people. So God's going to keep a remnant. Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Like you could say that about America today. But listen to me, God still has a faithful remnant. And throughout history, God's always preserved his church. He's always preserved it. The light will not go out. So here's what I want to encourage a couple of you with and maybe challenge a few of you with. Listen, we see God cares, and then when someone... When someone shows that, when, when God himself shows that he cares for us, like, what's our response? How do we respond to that? Because it should be an encouragement to us that God cares for us. So there should be a response from us. I think sometimes, though, like we get caught up with petty little things and we start dealing with little tiny fights over here, fights over there, gossip over here, slander over there. And sometimes, like, we're not walking in the fruit of the Spirit. You all know what the fruit of the Spirit is? Okay, if you know it, then at least you know it. But let's produce it, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And sometimes here's what happens with some of us. I'm guilty of this too. Uh, We get easily irritated. But we always have an excuse, don't we? Like, I only reacted that way because of what you said. We just excused our sin. If you wouldn't push my buttons, I wouldn't have said that. We just excused our sin. Well, I mean, that's true. Like, if everyone pampered me and catered to all my needs, I could tame my reactions quite well, too. All right? If you were more kind and more understanding, no, that's blame shifting. All right? Because whenever we're called on our sin, what do we have a tendency to do is to, is to point the finger, right? Point the finger. You, 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 you. Listen, hear me on this. When we react, it is only revealing 
what is already in our heart. Think about that. When we react, it is only revealing what is already in our heart. Like, when you're in that moment and that anger pops up, like, that anger just didn't pop into existence at that moment. It really didn't. You didn't suddenly develop an anger problem out of nowhere. It has been there. Maybe hidden, maybe lurking in the shadows, but now it's seen. And you can deny it really exists. You can downplay its existence. You can act like it's not a big deal. But God wants you to root that anger out of your life. He wants to deal with it. He's shown it to you probably time and time and time and time and time and time again as you've blown up. And now he wants you to deal with it. Okay, things people do that annoy you, uh, you know, if they'd only stop. Life would be easier if they'd only stop. Guess what? God's going to keep bringing people into your life till you deal with your stuff, all right? He's going to keep bringing those people and he wants you to deal with your sin because he wants you to be holy, as he says, like I am holy. So the Spirit wants to take those moments and he wants to redeem them. He wants to redeem them. He wants to sanctify us. And the question is, God cares for us. Do we care for God? All right? Listen, we're not supposed to be like Daniel who just ate vegetables when it comes to our spiritual diet. I mean, this is real spiritual food. We're supposed to hunger and thirst, hunger and thirst after righteousness. Hunger and thirst after right. What does that mean? Each of you should think about that. What does that mean for your life, to hunger and thirst after righteousness? Daniel, you know, the story, Daniel, he's eating vegetables with his friends. Daniel might have physically eaten only vegetables, but let me tell you, spiritually, like he was eating steak, all right? He was having a feast. And the real spiritual food that we're talking about, uh, it's a real spiritual diet we need of wholesome food. And some of us, we're eating too many Snickers, we're eating too many Milky Way for our spiritual diet. We're lazy, we're fat, we're overweight spiritually. That's not good. That's not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we need a steady diet of healthy things. Listen, how, think about this for a second. Like, how do we treat our God? We treat our God far worse at times than other religions treat theirs. Because the Hindus have a great reverence for their gods. Even the Muslims have a reverence for God, and they fear him. And so do the Hindus. Yet you can't get away from the Bible without seeing that fear, fear, is actually vital to our walk with the Lord. A healthy fear. Sometimes we don't treat God so well, we should repent of that. Let me encourage you with a couple things here. One, I just want to encourage you that God is in control. Look at John 19. This is Jesus before Pilate. He says in verse 10, Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Listen, Jesus could have done whatever he wanted to at that moment. He had the authority by God given to him 
but he wanted to be faithful to the Father. And he acknowledges God's control here. And he's saying, whatever you're going to do is only because God has let you have the position that you have. And if God wanted to, he could stop it right now. But because it's part of his plan, he's not going to. But God, Pilate, is in control. He wanted him to understand that. Listen, we need to understand that the enemy is not in control. Okay? He doesn't have the power. God has the power. God has the power. What, what did we read in, in Colossians about Jesus? Right? He's, I mean, all those dominions and rulers and thrones, like God is over them. He's over them. So the enemy is not in control. All right? Man is not in control. Like, what did he do to Nebuchadnezzar? He humbled him, didn't he? Made him out in the field looking like an idiot, eating grass. Man is not in control, all right? God is in control. Even if we look at the landscape of America, listen, the Republicans are not in control. The Democrats are not in control. President Trump is not in control. Nine Supreme Court justices are not in control. And guess what? You are not in control. All right? God is in control. Proverbs 16 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Then it says in Proverbs 20, A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Now, I, I hear you, friends. I know what you're thinking. Uh, sometimes people are like, uh, preach me something that makes me feel good. Right? Look, when you go to the doctor, you're not going because you feel great and are healthy. You're going because you've got a problem, you've got a sickness, you've got an illness, an injury. Something's wrong. And when you're coming to church to hear from the pastor, you've got to think to yourself, like, something's wrong and I need some fixing. All right? Maybe you just need a little Band-Aid. All right? But some of you need a lot of Band-Aids. You need some big bandages. Listen, you don't just want me to, to tickle your ears with pleasantries. All right? You need the hard truth. Um, and if you're at the doctor and there's something wrong, you don't want him saying, oh, uh, everything looks fine. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you're doing great. You know? And you're like, <coughs> okay, no. You know, you're like limping out of there. Like, he might have told you something you wanted to hear, but that's not the truth of the matter. And listen to me. I don't know about you, but I don't want consolation. I want salvation. So if you want consolation, like, you need to go somewhere else. Because they're going to console you. They're going to tickle your ears. They're going to tell you stuff that you just want to hear. I want salvation. So to me, it's like, tell me the worst about myself now so I got some time to do something about it. Like, Give me the hard truth so I got time to react. If I'm on my, on my way to falling off the cliff, like, don't tell me as one of my feet is already off of it. Like, tell me about a half mile back. That's a bad path to be on. You might want to turn around. So I want, I want salvation, not consolation. So <clears throat> the point is this, to wrap everything up. God cares for us. He's with us. And here's how one theologian put it. 
He says, he is with us daily to pardon and forgive. With us daily to sanctify and strengthen. With us daily to defend and keep. With us daily to lead and to guide. With us in sorrow and with us in joy. With us in sickness and with us in health. With us in life and with us in death. With us in time and with us in eternity. Thus we can trust him. Thus we seek him. Thus we hunger and thirst for the things of God. He has shown himself faithful that he cares for us, that he will be with us, that he will walk with us, that we can commune with him, that he will speak to us through his scripture, and that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you do walk with us. We thank you that you are with us every step of the way. Even if it doesn't feel like it, God, you are here. We thank you that you're faithful even when we're not. We thank you that you are good. So continue, Lord, we ask to be with us. Continue, Lord, we ask to walk with us. And I pray for each one of us, Father, that you would give us a hunger, a real hunger and thirst for righteousness, a real hunger and thirst for the things of God, that the things of this world would be like gravel in our mouth, but the things of you would be like sweet honey. So have your way with us, Lord. I pray that you would work in us, that you would work through us. We thank you for your spirit and how he fills us, how he strengthens us, how he does his work in our weakness. Lord, you are strong. So I ask, Father, that you would magnify yourself in us, God. Magnify yourself before us. Magnify yourself, God, in these churches represented here, Lord, that you would shine brightly, that you would be glorified. Give us the spiritual eyes, Lord, to see and respond to you. Give us the spiritual ears to hear from you, God, that you would be glorified in our midst. Amen.